the paths that people follow in the real world to meaningful and passionate work is way more complicated than simply, I figured out I was meant to do X and then I did X and loved it. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. What's the number one problem all businesses face? It's not sales, marketing, or product market fit. It's hiring. We know just how hard it is, so we've compiled 25 hiring tips from top CEOs that I've interviewed here on Growth Everywhere and put it into a free resource just for you. Text 25 tips to 33444 to get the free resource now. Again, it is 25 to number 25 tips, T-I-P-S, to double three triple four, and you'll get the free resource. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Growth Everywhere, where we interview entrepreneurs and bring you business and personal growth tips. Today, we have Cal Newport, who is the author of So Good They Can't Ignore You and a couple of other titles as well. He is a writer and professor of computer science at Georgetown University, um, and he also runs the popular advice blog, Study Hacks, which attempts to decode patterns of success in both school and the working world. He's also been featured on TV, radio, and in many many major publications, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and New York Post. Cal, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Eric. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So um, yeah, Cal, why don't we start off with a little bit of your background as it relates to kind of all the stuff that you're doing now? Well, as you mentioned uh, in the introduction, I am right now a computer science professor here at Georgetown, um, but throughout the whole process of being a student and then a graduate student and then on to professordom, I've been writing books and blogging along the way. So I have this interesting dual path that sort of interacts with each other. I write books about the things that are relevant to my life as a professor and my life as a professor gives me ideas for the books. And so it's been an interesting intertwined journey that I've been on for these past 10 years or so. Got it. Okay. Cool. So, why don't we talk a little bit about the your most recent book? Um, you know, so good they can't ignore you. You know, what's can you tell us a little bit about the book? Well, the main thesis of the book is that the advice to follow your passion is bad advice if your goal is to end up passionate about what you do for a living. Got it. Okay. And why is following your passion bad advice in general? Yeah. So let's be clear right off the bat that there's an important distinction between the goal of ending up passionate about what you do for a living and the strategy of identifying a pre-existing passion and then using that pre-existing passion to make career choices. So when I researched this issue for that book, when I tried to understand how did people actually end up passionate about their work, it became clear that this notion of a pre-existing passion is not at all a useful notion. Uh, most people don't have something that they would identify as a pre-existing passion. And even if they do, that's actually quite unrelated to whether or not you're going to end up passionate about your work. That the paths that people follow in the real world to meaningful and passionate work is way more complicated than simply, I figured out I was meant to do X, and then I did X and loved it. 
Cool. So are you saying it's mainly, you know, you start with the work first and then you become passionate? It's more the passionate, the the passion part comes after, right? That's right. If you actually study passion uh, in the workplace, actually find people who are passionate about what they do, the story you find is that it's a side effect of running a career in the right way. That if you do the right things with your working life, your goal should be to end up passionate about your work. It's not a noun. Okay, passion is not something uh, that you own, that you possess, that you can identify and point to and say, oh, here it is. I have a passion for X, and now I can use that to make career choices. It's actually the side effect of a career that has the right traits, a career that's well-run, a career that's focused on the right thing. So I'm really trying to move people past this idea that passion exists in advance and that it can be identified and used in advance as a meaningful uh, piece of information in the, the working world or in the career process. Got it. Okay. And do you have any specific examples? I'm sure your book has a ton of them inside, right? Yeah, it does have a ton inside. Let's use a classical example. So many people point towards uh, Steve Jobs as a canonical case study of following your passion, being good advice, because this seems to be what he said during his famous Stanford commencement address. He said, uh, you have to do what you love. If you haven't found it yet, uh, keep looking don't quit. I'm paraphrasing him there a little bit. Um, but if you actually go and study the life of, of Steve Jobs, read enough biographies about him, go, go back to enough primary sources like I did, you see that's not at all what he did. Uh, leading up the Apple computer, he did not have a pre-existing passion for starting technology companies. He wasn't out there saying, I need to start a technology company that will change the world. Now let me go figure out how to do that. He instead stumbled into Apple Computer at a time where his interests were well more widespread. And if you had tried to pin him down and said, what, your, what is your passion? What are you most passionate about right now? He probably would have mentioned topics within uh, the area of Eastern mysticism. So he didn't follow a pre-existing passion, yet he ended up incredibly passionate about what he was doing at Apple Computer. That is sort of the canonical example of how passion happens. It's not about figuring out something in advance. It's about what you do with the opportunities you have to transform them into a source of passion. Got it. Okay. Yeah. It's really interesting also looking at uh, kind of what you've done too. Would you say your passion is, is more of like, you know, educating and teaching people in general? Well, first of all, I would never use the phrase your passion because to me, that's like saying your eye color, your blood type. It makes it seem like you're supposed to have this trait that, that you just need to identify and use. I think passion becomes very non-useful when you begin thinking about it like a noun or, or, or a personality mm. trait, like your hair color, your eye color. Uh, I think the, the right terminology I would use in describing myself is say, um, I have passion or I feel great passion for what I do as a computer scientist. I feel great passion for what I do as a writer. And it took a lot of time and hard work to get there. Fair enough. Okay. Now, you know, let's talk about the, the other books. I mean, what have you learned from, you know, producing all these books in general? Uh, and how do you, you know, how do you get the word out? I know, I know uh, so good they can't ignore you. I mean, I've heard that in, in a few circles. So how do you promote them in general? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. So uh, book promotion in, in the world of, of sort of traditional publishing has, uh, it has a lot of facets to it. Um, so I'm not great at, the idea of a huge push when a book comes out that, you know, pushes it onto a bestseller list temporarily, um, which is not as hard as people think. I think people have this image that this book is a New York Times bestseller. This guy must have sold 100,000 copies, where really it means something like 2,500 copies in your first week is enough for you to enter some 
extended bestseller list that then allows you to say I have a New York Times bestseller. But even that's not my thing. My my MO more has been books that did have a slow burn over time, uh, that the sales increase and they increase over the scale of years. So, you know, five years after the book comes out, it's actually selling more than the first year it came out. So my main strategy builds around trying to write timeless books. Um, that are saying something important and new that people are going to keep telling other people about. And so it's, it's not as splashy as uh, I have a 17-point plan for the first week, but I think in the long run it does end up selling uh, a reasonable number of books. Got it. Okay, and how many books do you think you've sold in all, you know, to date? Uh, what, per copy or like overall through all my books? Just overall through all your books. Uh, I'd have to do – that's a good question. I don't know exactly. I would say – I mean, So Good You Can't Ignore You is past 50,000 copies at this point. Straight A Students, probably my best-selling book so far. It's closing in on, I mean, it's well over 100,000 worldwide. On the U.S., I guess it's heading towards that number. The other ones are a little bit less and growing. So, uh, I don't know, a third of a million copies maybe. Awesome. Okay, I think that's a great, great accomplishment. Um, now, I want to I want to shift gears a little bit to your, your blog right now. You know, Study Hacks, can you talk a little bit about that and, you know, how it kind of helps people in general? Yeah, I started Study Hex in 2007. Um, at the time, I had written two books of student advice uh, because I like to write books about what's relevant to my life at the time. So I, I, I wrote my first book as an undergraduate and my second book as an early graduate student. So they were books about how to do well as a student because, hey, I cared about that. Um, so I started the blog after I'd published a second book so that I would have a way to keep interacting with readers of the book. So Study Hacks was for uh, several years a student advice blog. It was, let's get serious about hacks that work or don't work for being a more effective student. Um, as I neared the end of my student career, it uh, transformed because, again, I like to write about what's relevant to me. So somewhere around 2009 to 2010, the, the blog began to transform and focus more on career issues because I was about to enter the working world. And I wanted to understand how people not only were successful, but how they ended up passionate about their work. And so you see this evolution that happened uh, towards career issues and topics of careers and careers happiness. And so good they can't ignore you came out of that. And if you keep following the blog, you'll see more recently in the past two years, it's transformed the focus more on issues about what you do in your job to be more successful at it with a particular focus on this notion of uh, uh, deep work this idea of deep work. And not surprisingly, I'm sort of up to my neck in the editing process on my next book, which is on that topic. So the blog follows what's relevant to me in my life and books tend to follow behind the blog. Got it. And what is deep work? Uh, deep work is to focus without distraction on a cognitively demanding task. And I'm convinced that this skill is becoming more valuable in our economy at exactly the same time that it's becoming more rare. And so if you're one of the few people who, who cultivates that skill as a tier one skill, just like you might learn how to program a computer or write well, that you are going to do exceptionally well in the economy. Got it. Okay. And would this be similar to, you know, the, the, the concept of quote unquote flow that's you know, really discussed in Silicon Valley quite a bit? Uh, flow is connected to deep work. Um, there's, there's arguments within the academic circle about the connection between flow and other states of very effective concentration. And it really depends on who you talk to about about what people feel like. The, the, the thing about flow is that in a lot of its formulations, and I don't want to say all of its formulations, but in a lot of its formulations, uh, one of the key attributes is effortlessness. So you just get lost in your work and it seems effortless and time just, just rolls on. Um, so that's a, a state you can get into 
when doing deep work, but it's not the only state because it, it stands in contrast to another type of activity called deliberate practice, which is when you're deliberately trying to improve your skills, which is something else that you, you, you do a lot of the times when you're in a state of deep work. And that's not effortless. In fact, by definition, deliberate practice is incredibly effortful and actually quite unpleasant often. Um, so if all you're seeking is flow, you're not going to get better. So deep work kind of covers both of those things. Why do you want to go into a state of deep concentration? Well, two reasons. One is that's what you need to get better at things, to do deliberate practice. Uh, and it's also what you need to get the most out of your existing skills, which could be more like a state of flow. So you really need both, I think, um, if you want to continue to improve and do important things. Got it. Now, what is an example, a real-life example of deliberate practice? Well, I mean, deliberate practice comes out of the study of, of musicians, chess players, uh, athletes, uh, people where uh, expert skills are pretty well defined. Um, and the, the basic idea is to get better at something. It's not enough to just do it a lot. You actually have to do it in a way that's deliberately focused on improving your skills. So, um, for example, if you want to uh, become a better writer, Right. Just writing a lot doesn't make you a better writer. Just doing a bunch of blog posts doesn't make you a better writer. But if you're trying to, you know, you've pitched an article to a magazine and they're like, well, we'll take a look at it. And you know that if it's not like really, really good, they're just going to reject it and you're not going to get your money. So you're really stretching yourself to try to, to make it good. And you're looking at it and you're like, this isn't good enough. Like this magazine's a little bit beyond my skill, but I'm just going to do everything I can to get it there. That's a state of stretch that actually makes you a better writer. Um, so the same holds for any activity. Uh, repeated action doesn't make you better. Being in a flow state doesn't make you better. But figuring out what you can't quite do well and then pushing yourself right past that limit by just a little bit, stretching your ability does make you better. Got it. So aim higher. Yeah, you have to aim higher. It's hard. You know, it is hard. Uh, deliberate practice is hard. But that's kind of the good news because that means very few people are doing it unless you're in a field that has traditional competitive structures. I mean, if you're a professional athlete, everyone's doing it. But if you're a knowledge worker, Actually, not that many people are doing it. So if you're one of the few, you're going to get a big advantage. I totally agree with that. I mean, that's that's a scenario um, that, that happened a couple of years ago. I mean, you know, put into a VP of marketing role when I really, you know, was was freaked out and really didn't know what I didn't know. Um, and then you you kind of just aim higher. Um, I think it's Richard Branson that said, uh, you know, you just take a job where you don't understand things and just learn on the job. And I think that's, um, I didn't know there's actually a word for it, deliberate practice. So now I know. That's deliberate practice, yeah. If you keep doing the same thing, you hit a plateau. You you put yourself in an uncomfortable situation, you get better and fast. Got it. Cool. I love it. Um, so, yeah, what are some other uh, you know productivity hacks you can share around uh, study hacks? And that's a loaded question, so you can just feel free to share like two or three. Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm big on this idea of, of prioritizing deep work over shallow work. So uh, shallow work is the opposite of deep work. And the, the right way to define it is it's something that's, that's low-skilled and easy to replicate. And this notion that you need to have a, a certain proportion of your hours doing deep work or you're not getting better at a fast rate and you're probably not producing things of great value, right? Because deep work is really what makes you better at things and what makes you produce things that are really valuable. And focusing on that number I think is important because there's so much out there right now in the technology-related culture that is trying to lure people away from deep work. So if you keep asking yourself, if, what, if what am I doing right now, is this easily replicatable? And if the answer is always yes, then you've been lured in some sense into some attention economy trap. 
and and you're you're slowing down your own ability to make an impact in the world. I think a lot of the hype around social media does this. That that you know spending time working on your social media profile and tweeting and doing all these sort of things are all easily replicatable behaviors. There's no expert skill that you hard won being applied here. So it's not something that's actually producing a lot of value for you. But there's this great discussion around it that, well, this is the future and this is what you should be doing. And somehow it feels vital and interesting and important. Uh, there's traps like that that abound all over, which is why I think if you can prioritize deep work, in a time where fewer and fewer people are doing it, you're going to get a big advantage. Okay, cool. And I guess, you know, looking at you, you know, what's, what's an example of, of, you know, something that you've, you know, would, would your, your new book that's coming out be an example of, uh, of deep work? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the produce, uh, the produce a book, it requires a lot of deep work. And if you look at my life, for example, you'll see, um, I've never had a Facebook account. I've never had a Twitter account. Um, I don't web surf. I mean, I, I, I have a blog. I don't read blogs. I don't read anything really online. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of annoying with email. I can go days without checking email, right? Um, all those things you're not supposed to do, according to the chatter about, oh, it's all about connections and networking and technology, but that frees up time and attention for me to focus very deeply on a small number of things. So I can, for example, keep writing books while also being a professor, because I have time and attention to go deep on that. And in the long run, I think those things have more of a lasting value than if instead I'd be very connected and up to speed on all the latest technologies in the last few years. Got it. How do you, you know, how do you stay so disciplined? For me, you know, the, the ADD kicks in and I have to check that stuff. So, I mean, was there at any point in time where you really struggled with kind of shedding all this extra stuff? Well, I just never joined it in the first place. For exactly that reason. <laughs> this is why I don't have a Facebook account because I don't want to look at a Facebook account. You know, I, I don't have a Twitter account because I don't want to look at Twitter. I mean, if I know that there's – I'm as susceptible to this as anyone. If I know that there's a place right now that I could go to that not only is going to have interesting information but interesting information about me or in reaction to something I just said, you know, someone who's commented on something or retweeted something uh, – our brains are wired to crave that more than almost anything else. <laughs> right. I mean, it's terrible. It's it's the uh, it's the neurological equivalent of having like you know uh, a harem on the office next to you. It's always <laughs> open and free, and like just try to ignore this. You know, I mean, it's that essentially from our brain's point of view, it's the same thing. Or trying to be on a diet, and literally they just roll in carts full of just the best food every fifteen minutes. So like we're just going to leave this here. You know, Got it. <laughs> try not to eat it. Uh, so, so I changed offices metaphorically and just never joined those things. Interesting. Okay. Huh. Okay. Cool. That's fair enough. Um, I mean, I'd say I'm a I'm a curmudgeon on these things, but you know, I think it's okay for there to be some curmudgeons. You know, being a little bit extreme, but just to just to be a for the sake of argument, I'll can, I'll be a little bit more curmudgeonly about these services. Um, Especially, you know, if you're interested in doing something with a company or media or something that's important, there's these messages that you somehow have to be very involved in all these distracting products. But it's important to remember that uh, these are companies in California. You know, they're, they're people out in California. Uh, it's not a, um, a, a political movement. It's not like a government. It's just companies trying to make money out in California. And they make money if they can uh, get people to do two things, give them for free lots of personal information about themselves so that ads can be targeted, and then just spend a lot of time looking at their pages so that they can have ads shown to them. And when you see it like that, all these services seem a lot less vital. They seem a lot less, you know, the way that they're being marketed as this is the future, the most important thing happening in society. 
because the reality is um, no one ever got rich being good at using Facebook, but the small number of people who know how to build a service like Facebook, which is an incredibly deep, hard endeavor, are incredibly wealthy. And that's kind of the irony of this whole age is that it's that all these tools out there that are distracting us uh, are making a ton of value for the very small number of people who know how to build and built those tools and uh, is basically sucking value from all the people who are using them and giving it to the small number of people who actually know how to build a wide-scale distributed system, for example. I mean, that's the irony is that Facebook's engineers probably don't spend much time on Facebook because they're too busy uh, doing excellent programming. Right. Yeah, but looking at Facebook, I mean, you would say, you know, I would at least imagine that, you know, the, the value it comes from connecting people. And, you know, they, they probably do suck away value from people, but there is value being provided there, right? Well, everything could potentially provide some value, but I think that's just their marketing. Like, look, we can come up with these examples where someone met someone on here and then, and then that was a valuable connection for them. Uh, but that's all... And again, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate a little mm-hmm. bit just for the fun of it, but um, that's all incredibly low expected value, incredibly lightweight value. I mean, so uh, it's, it's interesting entertainment and maybe you might find a nice connection on here or this or that, but the type of, you know, put a dent in the universe world changing value that people crave doesn't come from, I had the right serendipitous Facebook connection or that made the difference in getting the word out about my book or something like that. I mean, it comes from uh, the application of incredible deep effort on something really important over a long period of time. Mm. You know, no one ever... Uh, no one ever made a fortune or made a difference because they use social media. I mean, it's incredibly incidental to the, the actual activities that, that, that matter in the world. I mean, if you want to start a business that, that is huge and makes a difference, it doesn't really matter if you use social media, right? If you want to write a book that's going to have a huge impact, uh, it doesn't really matter. It said if you're using social media to market, I mean, that's not going to make a bad book great, and it's not going to be the key to make a great book get known. Um, so and I'm being devil's advocate here a little bit, but you know, these are just companies trying to do whatever they can to get you to, to pay attention to the screen so they can sell ads. Um, and it's fine for entertainment, but I think the storyline that it's somehow crucial, uh, for making a difference, I just don't buy. Got it. Okay. Fair enough. So switching gears here a little bit, uh, I did look into you know some of your past interviews, and you know, something um, interesting popped up. You know, so what do you think the value is in working for people that you respect for absolutely free? Um, so that's uh, that's an idea that's been going uh, around a lot. I know um, Charlie Hohen talks about that. Uh, I think Ryan Holiday got started that way. Um, you know, I think that's. There's nothing wrong with it, right? I mean, there, if you're learning, I think if you can learn about a field and understand the reality of a field, that's incredibly valuable information. Um, but it's important to see that in the context of, yeah, if understanding how a field works is useful. Uh, and that's a good precondition for doing something big in that field. But then you still have to go at some point and actually do the really hard things that are really good and valuable, that working for someone for free for a little bit is really an information gathering exercise. It's not that if I do that, then that will give me some connection that makes everything easy or, or that, that, that alone will give me, you know, then success in that same field. It's really getting information intelligence. That's going to help you then do your own work in that field. Right. So you have to learn before you earn, right? Yeah. And, and that does help in the, in book writing, for example, to use a personal uh, case study, I see this all the time. Um, 
there's a lot of people who want to write books, but they don't want to actually hear about the reality of how that happens. They want it to be the, they have a plan for how it's going to work. Well, I want to, I'm going to write it on my own and I'm going to do it this way. And then I'm going to do this thing online. And, and that's not the best way to do it. That's not the, the best way perhaps to, to, to get a book that's read by the most amount of people. Um, but they don't want to hear about, well, here's how it works. You need to get an agent, and that's kind of hard, but if you do, then this will happen. And, and so I think this happens in a lot of different aspirational fields that um, people don't learn before they earn. They, they kind of invent their own storyline for how it should work. Like, I have this unconventional way I'm going to do this without really validating that. Uh, and the problem is just that lowers, you know, uh, uh, you want them to succeed in their endeavor. It actually is just going to strictly help you to know more about how, how the world actually works. Got it. Okay. Switching gears here, uh, just a final few questions. So what's one piece of advice you'd give to your 25-year-old self? To my 25-year-old self? Um, everything is harder than you think. <laughs> so so uh, um, choose, within the things you're already doing, choose a smaller number of things right now and begin focusing on those uh, more intensely. I mean, I think this has been the the reality I've learned as I get as I get a little bit older, a little bit older, I'm realizing that, Hey, there's really good people trying to do things that are good to do. So <laughs> it takes a lot of focus energy to do it. And uh, the earlier you start nailing down, I'm going to try to master this thing and do this thing really well. Those sort of more interesting things are going to happen in your life. Cool. All right. And what, you know, aside from your books, uh, what's one must read book you'd recommend to everyone? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I guess it depends. Uh, it depends on what, what what I would want them to get out of the book. Um, so let me think about what I might, what have I read recently that I might recommend? Uh, yeah, give me a context for this question. Give me a particular person that's asking me for a book recommendation, like a hypothetical person, and this is what they what they're looking for in life and then i can tailor the recommendation to that yeah i would say you know perhaps you know a a tech entrepreneur that might be overwhelmed that doesn't know how to deal with uh doesn't know how to you know prioritize correctly or something like that or it could be you know just general productivity type stuff okay so someone who's struggling with with productivity yeah then then there's some there's some standard books that i think cover the relevant ideas so uh task management and workflow you would want to read Getting Things Done and Work the System. Both of those would give you this, I think, a very important new mindset in the way of thinking about just task flow and, and handling tasks. Uh, in terms of focusing, the productivity question of focusing on um, work that matters, I think you would get two interesting alternatives if you read both uh, The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt and uh, Interesting. Walter Isaacson's Einstein biography. And the reason I'm suggesting those two is that you see in Theodore Roosevelt's life, this, this model of he's able, he had this intensity where he could just uh, turn it on when he needed to. And so that he was always working on very important things, but kind of on, on the side in some sense. I mean, he, he wrote, for example, this very significant book on the Naval War of 1812 while a law student at Columbia. And he just had this, he was always working on, you know, pushing his mind to any free time he had. There's this famous story about when he was at his ranch up in the Badlands. Um, they were going down an ice-choked river to, to catch cattle rustlers, right, to try to catch these guys who had stolen their cattle, or maybe it was horses. And he's sitting there reading Matthew Arnold in the front of this book, uh, in front of this boat, as it goes to this ice-choked river on their way to have a deadly confrontation. He was like, I want to read, the, you know, so he was always 
pushing time to, to, to do deep work and, 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 and important work anytime he could find it, then you could contrast that to like the Einstein model, which was his whole world became about general relativity. Um, and, and everything fell to the side. And that's what, you know, that's where his attention went. He just is an example of just the, the, the laser-like focus on one thing you're convinced is important um, to the detriment of everything else as another way of getting important things done. I think it's good to see both models because, uh, you know, different people, different situations, different models are going to be relevant. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Biographies are always pretty kick butt. And uh, yeah, no, I like the, I like the contrast there. Um, okay. So Cal, I know you don't have Facebook. I know you don't have Twitter and all that. So what's the best way for people to find you online? Well, calnewport.com. Uh, that's where my blog is and that's where you can find out about my books. Okay, perfect. Well, Cal, thanks so much for doing this. I think there's a lot of insight you provided around uh, deep learning and things like that stuff that I'd never heard of before. Um, And I think it's gonna be super helpful for the audience. Um, So Cal, thanks again. All right. Thanks, Eric. All right. Take care. What's the number one problem all businesses face? It's not sales, marketing, or product market fit. It's hiring. We know just how hard it is. So we've compiled 25 hiring tips from top CEOs that I've interviewed here on Growth Everywhere and put it into a free resource just for you. Text 25 tips to 33444 to get the free resource now. Again, it is 25 to number 25 tips, T-I-P-S to double three triple four, and you'll get the free resource. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.